Go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to uh, the book of Genesis. This is our last week in Genesis, and we're going to cover the first uh, nine verses in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, maybe someday we'll pick up here again, um, but, uh, but right now we're covering Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through, 1 through 9. I told the first service there are oftentimes sermons or particular texts when I lay out a sermon series that I circle, and this is one of them because I think that this text in particular has a lot of dramatic implications and intersections with some of the things going on in our, in our world right, right now. Um, and I think it's helpful for us to reflect on, on these events. It's a familiar story to you. You know it. It's the Tower of Babel. Um, and oftentimes we use this as a simple explanation for why there are many languages in the earth, but there is a whole lot more going on here than just, than just, uh, just languages. Let me read the text for us, and then we'll, we'll consider some things contained here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the tower came down to see, and, and the Lord, excuse me, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is, the, is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. There, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of, the, of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In our time in Genesis, we've considered several things. But one thing that I want to bring up again as an important component here, as we think about these nine verses in, in Genesis, uh, and I want to make this clear before we move on from Genesis, is something that I think is, is dramatically important for us as Christians, is the local expression of the church to understand. I think that secularization, and I'm going to define that in a moment, I think that secularization is one of, if not the biggest problems that our society is facing. When I say secularization, to be secular means to live in such a way as though God does not exist, or to think that God is or that belief in God is one option among many. Now, I'm making that statement in the midst of what we've been experiencing for the last three months in a global pandemic. I'm making that statement in fully understanding uh, the, the, the circumstances and a nationwide response um, in a myriad of ways to the murder of a black man just uh, down I-94 
from us. I'm not unaware of the headlines, but I'm looking for the root here. What's going on in our world that is causing these things to be a reality? And so I'm going to stand by my statement and I'm going to explain it a little bit more. Uh, that secularization of society, a society where belief in God is negotiable or seen as one of many options, is a huge problem. What God says, here are some examples. What God says to be true about the sanctity of life in his word is a non-negotiable for Christians. And yet our society murders babies by the hundreds of thousands each year. Because according to our society, belief in a God who calls life sacred is negotiable. What God declares to be true about mankind, that he and or that we bear his image, this, according to scripture, is a non-negotiable. We see it everywhere. It's a non, non-negotiable. We can't say it's not true. And yet society, our society, repeatedly turns a blind eye to systemic and institutional racism because according to our society, belief in a God who created mankind in his image is a negotiable element. What God says to be true of himself in Genesis, as we've explored Genesis together, these first 11 chapters, he says that he is the creator of everyone and everything, And yet our society says that that's a negotiable. Our society tells our kids that we originated through an impersonal cosmic event and descended from sludge. Why do kids in our society struggle with so many different issues? Why do kids in our society struggle with self-esteem and with bullying, with depression, with suicidal thoughts and actions? Could it be because we send them into environments and indoctrinate them with the idea that at their base level, they're cosmic garbage brought together by impersonal forces? The solution here, friends, the solution, I'm going to say this very clearly, is not to go back 50 or 70 years. The solution isn't just to inject prayer back into schools. The solution isn't political reform. These are passive and surface level solutions that will erode just like we've seen them erode in our society. They'll erode again. The solution is to acknowledge, starting with you and me as part of an important part of the expression of the local church in local communities, that we are acknowledged that we are subject to the forces that tell you that you don't need God. Those forces are both societal and they're in you, in your flesh. And to determine consciously or subconsciously that you no longer need God. This is what the Bible calls pride. To determine that you, either consciously or subconsciously, do not need God. That's what our text is about this morning. Last week we read through chapter 10 of Genesis and we noted a bunch of names uh, and uh, the primary purpose of this genealogy in chapter 10. However, this morning we have 
three, there are three verses in chapter 10 that chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 set out to explain for us. So the first is chapter 5, or verse 5 in chapter 10, where it reads, From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Verse 20 in chapter 10. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then verse 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So these, as we see in chapter 10, are the descendants of Noah's sons. And they're spread out in subgroups with different languages. Chapter 10 tells us the that despite the persistence of evil in a, on the earth post-flood, God's divine plan to bring about fulfillment of His promise to deliver His people remained intact. But then we see these people, and they're different. They, they have different languages. They have different lands. They have different clans. They have different nations. And so the question is, well, how did they get there? How did this all happen? And why did it happen? That's what we see in in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 in the Tower of Babel. So this passage is broken up into two clear sections. Verses 1 through 4 shows us the prideful plans of people. And then verses 5 through 9 shows us the perfect plans of God. So we'll break those off in turn. The first, the prideful plans of people. Just the first Again, four verses, and I want to highlight in particular verse 4. But leading up into verse 4, the people put a plan together. They put a plan together. They moved together to to the east, or from the east, to this place called Sinar, we're told in, or Shinar, and we're told in verse 2. And then they have a technological advancement. They build bricks. They make bricks for themselves. This is an achievement. Bricks, we still use bricks. It's a pretty incredible achievement. Then, the people formulate a plan. Look at verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Two important things to note in this verse. Two important things to note in this verse. First, look at right at the end of verse 4. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The people were afraid that they would get broken up. That they would get spread out. Now this is a problem because the people were ignoring God's command given to their ancestor Noah. And it's a problem because they were seeking security at the expense of obedience to the command. Consider Genesis 9-1 where God is speaking to Noah and giving, them a, giving Noah his covenant. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The people are not filling the earth here in Genesis chapter 11. They're not doing that. They might be fruitful. They may be multiplying. But they're ignoring part of the command. The part that says to fill the earth. They are clumping up together. And they're putting their 
societal structures in the form of a city and tower in the place of God to provide them with security. They're taking God's command, ignoring it, and then putting something else in the place of God to keep them safe. Primarily, their own ingenuity, their own technological advances, and, uh, and they're coming clumping together. Putting together societal structures in the form of cities and a tower to keep them safe. By doing so, they were doing two things. Again, they were disobeying God's command. We've hit on that already. But then they were also not trusting in God's promise. God gave Noah, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when Blaze preached, God gave Noah three things that Noah would be protected from when he established his covenant with Noah. He said that they would be protected from animals. He said that they'd be protected from men. And he said that he'd be protected from God himself. They're not trusting in God's promise here. They're ignoring it wholesale. God said that he would protect his people, but they think that their structure will be a better option for them. The construction of a city and a tower are designed to be societal structures to ensure their own personal security. Unfortunately, this is exactly what we do in our lives. This is exactly how we live. And oftentimes, even as, as Christians. Friends, our churches are full of people who care more about financial status of the church. They care more about structures of how this or that is done than obeying the commands of Christ and trusting and leading others to trust in the promises of God. Friends, our churches are full of people who think about and rely more on societal structures when it comes to their security and well-being than a creator God. These are realities, and the text warns us against them. This intersection is so real for us. We're doing this all of the time. We need to make some strong personal assessments. Are we afraid that following God's commands will lead us into a life that we don't want? The second thing that we see here in the first four verses, in verse four in particular, is right in the middle, embedded right in the center of this verse. We see the motives of the people were prideful. The motives of the people were prideful. Not only did they ignore God and his commands, but they also elevated their own status. Right in the middle of the verse, it says, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. This, this phrase highlights, highlights self-interest and a desire for independence. They would rather not rely on God for what they needed. They wanted to prove that they were gods unto themselves. This is what it means to, going back to the top of what we were talking about, this is what it means to be secular. God is an option among many. We'll choose ourselves and go that direction instead. That's what the people say. Let's we'll make a name for ourselves. Because the higher they got and the tower that they were built, that they built, the greater the achievement 
the greater that they would be. Our society is soaked in something similar. It's the cult of self. And friends, some of you are buying into it right now, consciously or subconsciously. You're buying into this cult of self. Making a name for yourself, expressing your independence, showing everyone how great you are. These may be the primary goals of your life. Or maybe it isn't that for you as an individual, but rather you're living to promote a a system, a societal structure, a political ideology, a particular lifestyle, a consumer product. You promote and live to promote the greatness of something. We are worshipers at our core. We are designed to look at things and to Declare their worth, their beauty. Christians live to promote nothing other than the greatness of God and His eternal goodness demonstrated to His people. Christians live to promote nothing other than the greatness of God and His eternal goodness demonstrated to His people. And so think this week as you are talking about something and you're giving it praise or you're declaring its worth, do you hold that in its proper place related to the infinite worth of Jesus Christ? Because you, as one who is in Christ, live to promote nothing other than the greatness of God and His eternal goodness demonstrated to His people. And so we see in the first four verses, the prideful plans of people are to promote themselves and their greatness, as is demonstrated through the phrase, come let us make a name for ourselves. And, while they trusted in their systems and in their own structures. Verse 5 then shows us God's response to all of this. Look at verse 5 with me. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children had man had built. This is meant to be a joke. This verse is meant to be ironic. God has to come down to look at the piddly tower that they've built. It's not, it's not big. It's not amazing to God. Through, through space exploration, we've discovered just how big the universe is. Or are beginning to get our heads around, if we can do that, how big the universe is. In 2016, scientists estimated that the universe is 93 billion light years across. 93 billion light years across. Again, I don't have categories for that, but this is really, really big. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere in the universe all of the time. So in the grand scheme of things, this tower that these people build is really small. It's very small. And in reality, when we read this and even have like some type of conception of how large the universe is and how big God is, it seems pretty ridiculous. So the language here in verse 5 is actually designed to help us contrast an omnipresent, omnipotent, eternal God with efforts of a small created beings. You'll remember when God created man, back in chapter 2 of Genesis. God breathes uh, 
air into the lungs of man. He forms man out of the dust, then breathes air into his nostrils. Man shares something in common with God, something very real. He shares in common, having the very breath of God in his lungs. Man also shares something in common with the ground, since he was formed out of it. Here, in this text, we see man's relationship to the ground highlighted. God has to stoop down just to see how low the tower is built. God is God. Human ingenuity and achievement really pales in comparison to a God who is present every single moment in a universe that is 93 billion light years across. And so since mankind ignores God's command to fill the earth by clumping up around this puny tower, God disperses the people anyways. The command that was given to them to fill the earth that they ignored, now God disperses them through different means. God confuses the language and sends people all over the earth, thus showing how chapter 10, verses 5, 20, and 31 are fulfilled. How do these people get everywhere with different languages and lands and clans and nations? How did they get dispersed over the whole earth? Well, it's because of their pride, because of their human hubris that they're spread out. Here's where we see God's plan shine through as perfect through this story. I think this is radically relevant to our moment even in 2020, and I want you to get this. The diversity, through the diversity, that would be developed from the scattering of all these people at Babel, God would make a people for himself. All these people are going to be scattered all over the face of the earth, every corner of the earth. They're going to speak different languages. They're going to have different clans. They're going to have different customs. They're going to have different practices. This is intended by God. This is our last week in Genesis, but right after, if you go to the second part of chapter 11, we find a, another genealogy and then which ends uh, in verse 31 with an introduction to Abram, who God then would rename Abraham. And like Noah that we saw a few weeks ago, God would establish a covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would be as many as the stars in the sky, like a huge amount of descendants. And through Abraham's line, God established a people, the Hebrew people. They were God's people, set apart. So God's people, Abraham, comes from part of the line that's outlined in Genesis chapter 10. Not everyone here. But one specific line leads to the line of, or to Abraham's birth. All the other people mentioned in chapter 10 spread out over the whole earth. But over the course of the next couple of thousand years, God sends Jesus into the world. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. But through Jesus' sacrifice, what happened? 
all of these people that are dispersed over the face of the earth are given an opportunity to be brought into the family of Abraham. They're given an opportunity, what Paul says, to be grafted into Abraham's family through Jesus Christ. So no longer does it have to do with your lineage or your line, but through faith in Christ. Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Paul says the Greek here, he's talking about all non-Jews, everyone who's not a Jew. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. For everyone, for all peoples, it's offered to everyone. The good news of Jesus Christ now takes everyone who fell outside of the family of Abraham and gives them the opportunity to move into it. And this is God's perfect plan. Dispersing men and women across the whole earth, confusing their languages, They now have different lands and clans and nations. They'll develop different skin colors and cultural practices and customs. They'll have different classes. And then God is going to take them all back and bring them back under one heading, the heading of Jesus Christ. Not to look like one another, not to speak the same language, not to adopt the same cultural practices, not to vote the same way or to live in cities or in the country, not to be uniform in every area of life, but... So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You you feel it this morning. Our world feels divided maybe more than ever in some of our lifetimes. Our our country feels like it's coming apart at the seams. And so we ask the question, well, what what is the solution Let me take us back to to where we started this morning. The the people in Babel believed that their structures and their security could be found in a godless man-made system. Our secular society, where belief in God is one option among many, it's not even necessary, it's negotiable, is the same. So as we close, let me ask you a question. This is an important question for all Christians to ask. It's a vital question. If you were to find out tomorrow with absolute certainty that God doesn't exist, would your life be any different? If you were to find out tomorrow that with absolute certainty God doesn't exist, would your life be any different? This is a thought exercise. You believe that God exists. You say, of course I believe that he exists. But the question is not to determine if you believe that God exists, but rather does your life demonstrate a belief that God exists? Or, does your life demonstrate to the world around you that God is one option among many? The people in our text decided that God was unnecessary to have security and structure. They lived as though God did not exist. 
They lived like their name and their personal interests were the most important thing. Would your life really be that different? Do you rely on things other than God for your security? A certain figure in your bank account. The locks on your door. Living in a certain location in town. Do you rely on human structures to provide you with a sense of security? A particular government response to unrest. A set of man-made right practices or procedures. Friends, what we believe comes out in what we do. What we believe comes out in what we do. And if we invest all of our time and all of our energy into man-made securities and structures, then you're living like God doesn't exist. We're just shaking in some Sunday morning services and maybe a little Bible reading here while we go about living our self-absorbed existence. Friends, the belief in God that's portrayed here in Genesis 11, the opposite of what the people do, it looks like an unshakable life. These people's lives were shakable. God had to stoop down to see the most amazing human achievements, and He still does to this day. Even our greatest technological achievements pale in comparison to the the reality of who God is. This is a God whose perfect plan can't be disrupted. And that's where we put our hope. If you're putting your hope in a human structure or a human system, you can be certain that that will be disrupted. If you put your hope in a God who is the creator of everyone and everything and who never changes, you can be certain that your security will never be disrupted. This is a God whose plan cannot be disrupted. This is a God that loved you with such an unshakable love that He sent His Son to die for you. To bear the weight of all your sin and shame. To offer you the forgiveness of sins. And to make you right with God when there was no hope of doing that yourself. Friends, so the admonition is clear. Don't be unified in anything other than the one Jesus Christ. Don't seek to be unified in anything other than the one Jesus Christ because those societal systems and structures will shift under your feet very quickly. You know, you, you're watching the news. You're on Facebook. The narrative shifts so quickly. You're looking for information to give you hope. You're not going to find it there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You will not find unity in anything other than Jesus Christ. Not in an age group. Not in a socioeconomic class. Not in political ideology. Not in human achievement. But only under Jesus Christ. So my ask of you this week is simple to really consider this week. Am I dedicating my time and energy to a societal structure? Am I dedicating a time, my time and energy to a figure in a bank account? Am I dedicating my time and energy to anything other than trusting in Jesus Christ? 
You say, but that's not practical. And I say, the practicality, the wisdom of the world is not the wisdom of God. What would it look like if we as a church, what would it look like if the people of God in this room, every single person, trusted, relied on, and considered God in everything that we do? Really consider that with me this morning. Let's pray.